You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Essentially, this revolution to the small-scale, local, decentralized, and renewable resources is really affecting every aspect of how the electric power system is operating. There's greater command intervention by the governments into capital formation, and decoupling and deglobalization could enhance it. For August 9th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As the energy transition progresses, we're increasingly encountering one important question. Whose job is it to lead the energy transition? And we've looked at this question from multiple angles over the years. Longtime listeners may recall our trilogy of shows in 2019 that asked how markets can guide the transition. In episode 90, we asked how wholesale markets could be reformed to favor more clean power. In episode 97, we explored how state policies can be used to choose clean power directly. And in episode 105, we discussed how wholesale electricity markets can use competition to deliver clean electricity. Incidentally, episode 105 is where we first really delved into HB6, the Ohio bailout bill for nuclear and coal plants that subsequently prompted a federal corruption lawsuit and sent the former State House Speaker and Republican Party Chairman to prison. We'll have an update on that in the new segment of this episode. We also considered the role of markets in episodes 16, 22, and 157. We've considered the role of regulators and the problems of regulatory capture and corruption in episodes 43, 73, 105, 145, 177, and 198. We'll be revisiting that subject again in episode 206. We've asked how local community leaders and elected officials can lead the energy transition from the bottom up, and conversely, how local activists can hinder and undermine the energy transition. We covered those stories in episodes 50, 94, 98, 121, 150, 161, 164, and 175, and we'll be covering it again in episode 205. We've also looked at the role of governments, particularly where no one else seems able to meet a particular challenge, or where that challenge isn't really anyone else's responsibility. We explored those ideas in episodes 137, 181, 185, and 196. So today, we're going to try to bring some of these disparate threads together in a high-level conversation with a former regulator who believes that regulators and governments will have to play much more creative, courageous, and ambitious roles in the future to contend with the challenges of the energy transition. For over 30 years, Audrey Zibelman has had an impressive career in the utility sector, including roles as general counsel for the New Hampshire Public Utilities Commission, vice president at Excel Energy, executive vice president and COO of the PJM Interconnection, the largest structured wholesale electricity market in the U.S., chair of the New York State Department of Public Service, the utility regulator in that state, the CEO of the Australian Energy Market Operator, or AMO, various non-executive director roles at multiple energy companies, as well as leading her own consultancy, Veridity Energy. She has an incredible wealth of experience to bring to bear on these important questions, and it's a huge honor to have her join us as a guest in today's conversation. 
Then in the news segment, we'll update the story on the federal corruption lawsuit over HP6 in Ohio. We'll note the latest move by Australian billionaire and climate activist Mike Cannon-Brooks. We'll recognize some recent efforts to curb utility lobbying and influence. We'll check out the transformation of a coal plant to a battery storage facility. And we'll see how high-speed rail is competing with air travel. And now, our conversation with Audrey Zibelman, recorded June 12th, 2023. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Audrey, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. So for over 30 years, you've had an impressive career in the utility sector, including several roles, both as a regulator and on the other side as a utility executive. So you're better placed than most to understand the challenges that utility regulators face, as well as the motivations and methods of the energy companies they regulate. So I'm very excited to have you join us today to talk about regulatory reform and get your thoughts on how governments and regulators can make the energy transition easier. So let's start there. What are some of the things that governments and regulators can do to make the energy transition easier? You know, I've been thinking about this since you and I first discussed the matter. And and as I told you, I was really intrigued by the fact that we've moved out of the concept of the transition into a whole new period around execution. And I think that it is really important that we now start thinking in in that construct, what are the things that we can do beyond spending money and putting in subsidies and building things that are going to help drive cost and help drive this transition to be a lot faster? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I've been talking to folks in the US and in Europe and Australia and Africa, India, South America sort of in my travels at various events. And it all does seem to come down to maybe five or six things that we should really start talking about and start doing as a mechanism to move these things further. So I I can go through each one. Okay. So the first, and this is the problem that we're seeing in the US and everywhere else, is the whole process of connecting renewables to the grid is just not working. Yeah. And part of it, the reason it's not working is... People say, oh, we don't have the infrastructure. But there's a reason we don't have the infrastructure. And I think we need to start talking about, well, what changes need to happen? And one of the aspects of the transition is I think we need a lot more temerity, I guess is the right word, around how we go about things. And people willing to actually say we have to change things up on a regulatory and government model. We built the grid in the 20th century using tools around engineering and integrated planning. And you know, obviously, at that point, we had single decision makers in most countries, whether it was a government or investor-owned utility. Now we have much broader systems, and we also have the fact that there are multiple owners. But it doesn't take away from the fact that this transition is so massive and so complex around the kinds of technology we have to retire and the technologies we have to put in and the way they operate are so different that if we don't have some form of an integrated system plan, and people might say that's central control, but I don't think it is, where we actually examine at at a system scale, what is the most economically optimal resources we need to put in both for reliability and for the stability of the system? Because we're changing the nature of the technology and how we maintain voltage and and frequency and inertia all are going to have to change. And at the same time, walk and chew gum and think about, well, what's the optimal retirement scenario? 
Because if we start thinking we're going to be building the grid and then the wrong kind of units retire and suddenly we find ourselves lacking in some critical service, that's going to cost money too. So I think it's, it is around creating this broad system planning. That's something we discovered late in the game in Australia. And as a result, we ended up, I think, delaying a lot of things and also spending more money than people wanted to in doing connections that ultimately weren't working the way we wanted them to. And so doing that all ahead of time and then using a competitive process to secure the goods is great. But I think de-risking the investment cycle by knowing exactly what we're going to need and trying to build ahead of time to accommodate is going to be very important. So that's one piece that I'm sure will be somewhat controversial. But if we did that, I think we could also speed up the connections. So when you talk about sort of system planning, maybe this needs a little definition because obviously a lot of regulatory commissions and utilities already participate in this sort of IRP, the integrated resource planning process. So how is that different from what you're talking about? There are a couple things. One is, is that many IRP processes often look at things such as reliability of the system. What kind of generation and what level are we going to need in order to meet the demands. The type of planning that I think a transitioning grid needs to do is much more broader. One, it should be regional. It shouldn't be necessarily an individual utility. And secondly, it has to be total system planning. We should be thinking about the supply, but we also need to simultaneously consider the demand. What are we doing around electrification? How do we use distributed energy resources better to drive efficiency? Where are we going to put the type of storage and how much storage are we going to need for firming? Those types of things need to be thought of in a much more complete way versus a very siloed way where we're just looking at meeting particular demand. I think it's really doing much more than simply switching out the type of supply. We're really totally re-engineering the power system. Yeah. And we need to be thinking about all of the pieces that are going to have to be put in place. Especially how we're going to integrate these demand-side resources and customer-owned resources or DERs and so on. So I hear you saying that we need to be doing a lot more sort of long-term, long-range planning and procurement strategizing, I suppose, at like the RTO or the ISO level. And I've certainly seen many reports over the years produced by RTOs and ISOs that do look at sort of the long-term need for these things, but they don't really have the agency to do procurement. So how do you put those things together? Well, one is they also don't have the agency to do what we really want them to do. I mean, wouldn't we want to say that if we did the right type of scenario planning, that we'd be taking a look at where do we want to be in 2030, 2040, 2050 relative to grid decarbonization? And then what are the optimal paths to get us there? So it's a much more complex and complete look at it. Mm. And then once we determine that, including what are the risk factors and how climate change itself is going to change risks and other policies, I think then we could back it up into sort of then doing what scenario planners have done in many industries and then say, well, what are the no regrets we should be doing over the next 5, 10, 15 years based on demand and changes on the system. And I think at that stage, if it is at a regional basis, maybe then we do need to start thinking about looking at a regional 
procurement, particularly when it comes to supply. Again, we have to rethink how we do things Mm. and also take into account in that context what's happening at the distribution level and what we want to do around enabling electrification, et cetera. I know most people will listen to this and say, that's like way too hard, way too much government involvement. I don't know how you make a transition like this without that kind of vision of where do you want to be. Yeah, the first thing that came to my mind is, okay, the states that jealously guard their authority to select the resources that they want to build in their state are going to object to this. (laughs) I suspect they will, and they'll probably (laughs) compete, but it could be a healthy competition too of saying that they want to create the best economic environment to attract the resources and jobs. So there could be healthy competition among the states around where the resources will go. Mm. But at, at the same time, hopefully, at some point, we start recognizing that just like any other economy, having interstate commerce makes sense, and it could drive down costs because we're spending a lot of money, and I think there's going to be a lot of investment everywhere. But doesn't this suggest that there's going to have to be potentially some new authorities granted to RTOs and ISOs, or at least a new concept of how guidance and authority is divided between these structured regional wholesale markets and the states? Yes, I think we do. I think we have to look back and say, do we want the regional authorities? And it may be that you can do this and maintain the procurement at the state level. But I think if we do that, and this is where I think the scenario planning and good modeling could be helpful, we could potentially see then that what states are doing is actually creating a cost to consumers that may not need to be there. Yeah. And, and then it becomes both a harder and easier issue. Yeah, I take that point. All right, what was the next one? The next piece, which probably goes very closely to the first, is, I think, around market design. And recently, another study was produced in the UK, I think it was last week, around the value of locational pricing, Hmm. which goes to part and parcel the first, to get much better information. I think that this is an area that's probably one feature of market design that's going to be really important. As we continue to sort of think about the grid as becoming both decarbonized and more distributed, it will be important to be able to monitor the flows and actually get accurate price signals so we can see how we can use DER better and where we need to put resources and what new constraints are showing up on the system. And I think if there are any a time that we need to go back, I mean, most of the RTOs use locational pricing but it's not used universally. And again, without that kind of information transparency, I would worry about the fact that people are paying more than they need to for energy, Mm -hmm. which should be everyone's objective. Yeah. I assume you're talking about the Ofgem study. Yes. Right. And you know what that brought to mind for me was our conversation with Julian Leslie in episode 174 of National Grid and how They're doing very sophisticated sensors now across the national grid network in the UK and different kinds of modeling to help them understand how the need for frequency and regulation and inertia changes at different points in the network and how they can use sort of inverter-based resources and things like that, or even just synchronous condensers to maintain grid stability as more and more variable renewables are coming onto the system. And it seems to me that that 
practice and effort that they're undertaking there is a natural match for what you're talking about, where you're evaluating LMP pricing. I think it is, as well as the first point, which is in doing so, then you can actually start planning the system and thinking yeah. about what do you actually need versus what you think you need, Right. which is actually one of my other elements that I think we ought to be doing better. The other piece that's happening is the, the work that the UK is doing around figuring out exactly what we are going to need for inertia and frequency, et cetera, how we use grid forming inverters and other technologies. So we're not just thinking, well, we need to keep the fossil around to support the grid. Right. It's really important work. That type of work is also being done in Australia. And I think it's great. The question now that I think we need to ask ourselves is these are problems that are going to get repeated in every system around the world. There's nothing unique about that feature. The question is, is how do we do fast adoption in this industry where historically everyone has felt that they have to do it themselves in order to make sure it works? And so the other element that I think regulators, policymakers ought to be thinking about is how do we share information better, these learnings? How does the industry share it better? And how do we make sure that people are not repeating the same mistakes? How do we make sure that technology that seems to be solving issues can be scaled much more quickly? And all of that, I think people should be insisting on much better tools around discovering the best solutions, just not utilities feeling like they have to engineer them themselves, but identify what the problems are and allowing the market but other experiences to come to fore. And I, I think we need to look at how other industries do fast adoption and get the power industry and as well as regulators into the same mindset, which to me, part of the solution to that, as you know, is something I've been harping on about for the last few years is much better digitalization tools. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. 
At long last, two of the principal actors in one of the largest corruption cases in Ohio history are finally getting their just desserts. At the end of June, former State House Speaker Larry Householder was sentenced to the maximum 20 years in prison for orchestrating a nearly $60 million illegal bribery scheme. And the former Ohio Republican Party chairman, Matt Borges, was given a five-year prison sentence for his role in the pay-to-play scheme that helped Householder win control of the Ohio House of Representatives in 2018. The two received bribes from First Energy to advance House Bill 6 in Ohio in 2019 and defended against a ballot measure. The bill awarded a $1.3 billion bailout for two nuclear plants owned by First Energy. That portion was repealed in 2021. It also bailed out two 1950s-era coal plants owned by the Ohio Valley Electric Corporation that had lost money for many years, one in Ohio and another in Indiana. That portion of the bill remains intact and has resulted in $400 million in subsidies from Ohioans so far, an amount that is expected to double by 2030. Both men were immediately taken into custody and have appealed. But there is still more justice to be done. Householder's former political strategist, Jeff Longstreth, and lobbyist Juan Cespedes, who pleaded guilty and testified against their former associates in the federal corruption trial earlier this year, have yet to be sentenced. They face up to six months in prison as part of their plea deals. Former lobbyist Neil Clark, who had pleaded not guilty, committed suicide in March 2021. And the chairman of the Ohio Public Utilities Commission, Sam Randazzo, who First Energy admits to bribing in addition to Householder, has never been charged with a federal crime. Neither have First Energy executives that were fired over the scandal, including then-CEO Chuck Jones. Randazzo, who is a defendant in the state's civil corruption case against First Energy, Harbor, and others, claims he did nothing wrong and continues to enjoy the support of Governor DeWine, who appointed him. DeWine also claims ignorance of the massive bribery and corruption scheme that went on under his nose. If you've missed our ongoing coverage of this scandal over the past several years, including how gullible, if well-meaning, climate hawks uncritically supported HV6 simply because it kept uneconomic nukes running, listen to episodes 156 and 177. Item 2. As we have chronicled in the news items of episodes 141, 161, and 192, the extremely ambitious $20 billion Sun Cable project, which would build a 4,200-kilometer undersea cable to export solar-generated electricity from Australia to Singapore, founded on the rocks of financing in 2021, and went into... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.